So I'd like us to uh, read from Romans uh, chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and uh, we left off at the end of verse 5 last week, and uh, we'll pick up at verse 6. And uh, Paul is speaking about God's judgment, and not only on uh, the the world out there, as it were, from chapter 1 verse 18 onwards, but also uh, upon the religious hypocrites. Uh, in chapter 2. So uh, when we come to verse 6, he carries on in that theme, and we're going to uh, consider together what Paul says. So Romans chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness... There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But honor and glory and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we pray as we come to your word, that again you give us understanding in what is a a difficult passage in some ways. And Lord, we seek the help of your Holy Spirit to bring light Where there is darkness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been looking at this letter uh, that the Apostle Paul has written uh, to the Roman church, uh, written probably about AD 57, uh, to a church that he has never visited himself. He never planted the church. Paul, as yet, has not been to Rome. He will eventually get to Rome, as the book of Acts tells us. Uh, but at the moment, he's never been there. And, and if you remember, uh, if you look towards the end of the, the book, he's telling uh, his readers why he wants to write to them, because he's planning a missionary journey. He is planning to go from, first of all, to go to Jerusalem, to deposit uh, gifts from the other churches to the church in Jerusalem. And then he plans to make his way back westwards, eventually to get to Spain. And uh, he wants to stop off in uh, Rome, and in a sense, what he's doing is he's he's writing a missionary letter, uh, it, preparing the the Roman congregation for the visit of the apostle, which may be several months ahead. But uh, it's it's probably unlike any missionary letter you've ever read, because in it, of course, he spells out the gospel, his gospel, the gospel that he's received from the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the gospel that he preaches to all the nations. And uh, and this is what is in the con- in the content of this letter, the 
uh, the Christian message that offers salvation to all men and women, boys and girls. And uh, he wants to go to wherever it's never been preached before. And he wants to tell people about Jesus Christ, that they may believe in him and have everlasting life. That they may receive a righteousness from Christ uh, that is not their own, but it's uh, a righteousness from God that has been revealed from faith to faith. And they receive it by faith. This is the, the glorious background to this, uh, this gospel message. And uh, what Paul has been doing is he's been spelling out why it is necessary that there is such a gospel message. And so from chapter 1 verse 18, uh, which summarizes quite well, the, the plight of mankind uh, for the wrath of God is revealed or is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They, uh, human beings, they, they have the truth, but it's written into their hearts, uh, as we'll see later. Uh, there is a sense of what is right and wrong. There is a sense of the existence of God, as he goes on to speak later. But the, the truth of all of that is suppressed, or even you could translate it as being repressed in the human heart, so that men and women don't, who don't want anything to do with God, they will press it down in their own souls. But, uh, part of the role of a gospel preacher is to, is to shake things up a bit in the human heart. To draw attention to what's true and what they know to be true. And this is what Paul does. He is preaching the gospel um, as he goes about the world. Uh, This world, of course, is given over now to unrighteousness and ungodliness. And the very prevalence of sin in the world, which we can all see with our eyes, is a sign that God's wrath is already at work where he gives men and women over to futile thinking, uh, to debased thinking, and to the passions of their hearts. God gives men and women over to those things. So if, if human beings want to go their own way, God says, go your own way. And he gives them over to them, so that sin will, have, will do its work. And just in case anyone is in the Roman church and listening to this letter being read out in church, and they may be sitting there nodding in approval about those other people out there, then in chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to religious hypocrites. People in the church who may yet still be religious hypocrites who may be professing all the right things, saying all the right things, perhaps looking like they're doing all the right things, but they are, in their heart of hearts, still unchanged by that gospel. And certainly I think Paul, as we saw last time, I think Paul has his eye on those with a strong religious background, perhaps especially the Jews in the congregation, those who have been converted or seem to have been converted and yet will maybe have the same hypocritical baggage that they have brought into the church and still remains in their own heart. And what the Apostle Paul is keen to get over to his readers and the congregation in Rome is 
that God is still going to judge according to truth. Remember, we looked at that last time in verse 2. We know that the judgment of God, and I think the translation in the ESV is, is not helpful here. It says the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Uh, but I think the translation should be something like that the judgment of God is according to truth on those who do such things. God knows the truth of our hearts. Uh, And it's a fearful statement, isn't it? That God knows exactly the state of our hearts. Every single one of us here today, God knows exactly what your heart is like and whether you are trusting in Him or not. God sees inside of, of it. So now Paul goes on and talks further about this judgment. And as I said last week, you may, last week I said you may wonder why you came because it's such a hard message and I'm still going to continue in that vein and you may still be thinking, why did I come tonight, <laughs> this afternoon? Um, and I was a little bit tongue in cheek about that. But there is a serious side to this because Paul is, I think, deliberately relentless about this problem of the human heart. Because he, uh, as a gospel preacher, he needs to expose every last vestige of self-righteousness that lingers in the human heart. And all that ungodliness that resides in the human heart. And to lay it bare before our eyes, so that we may see the depth of our sin in all its ugliness. So that then we can see clearly... The vital need that we have for a saviour who can give us the righteousness that we need. Our Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel for men and women, boys and girls. This is what Paul is doing. And it may be that there is someone here who is fed up with this message or really wishes that they had stayed at home today. And that that probably means... That you still do not yet see your need of Christ lurking in that heart of yours. There's a little me inside of you saying, I'm perfectly okay, thank you very much. Uh, I don't think I need this message. I'm not sure actually if I need Jesus Christ. I'm actually pretty good myself. Beware. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it, says Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 17 verse 9. So as we go forward with Paul, hang on in there. Don't give up just yet. Let me say three further things about judgment. And the first is, judgment involves a great separation. A great separation. We see this in verses 6 through to 8. And Paul begins in verse 6 by speaking about judgment. He says, he will render to each one according to his works. He specifies a criterion, interestingly. He says, it's according to works. Now, I'm going to come back to that later, as you might hope I would. For the moment, what I want you to see with me is, is that in the light of that judgment, there is going to be two outcomes The first outcome leads to eternal life in verse 7. And the second outcome leads to wrath 
and fury in verse 8, which results in verse 9 in tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now I'll come back to eternal life, as I said, uh, at the end, but for the moment I want us just to follow Paul's thinking about the other outcome, the rendering of wrath and fury to certain people. And here's the important point. Paul is, remember, Paul is talking to people who may consider themselves religiously minded, law-abiding, moral people. And some of them are going to suffer the wrath of final judgment. Isn't that shocking? That in a church, there could be some people who are going to face the wrath of final judgment. Now it's hard for us, I think, perhaps to put into words how shocking this might seem to a Jew who thinks he has everything tidily sorted out. After all, he is one of God's chosen people. They have the law. They try to keep that law. They encourage other people to try and keep that law. What's wrong with that? Well, here's the problem. You can be ever so religiously minded, but still be dead in your trespasses and sins. You can have the law written down in front of you, but you can be spiritually blind to God and to your desperate condition. And you're not really interested in what God says about you. And the terrible tendency of people who have an outward form of godliness, a form of morality, they have their lives in order, maybe they even attend church, is that increasingly such people look in upon themselves without reference to God. And so they become concerned about how they measure up to their own ideals and values. And those ideals and valuables, they are, uh, have you ever noticed this about people? They are flexible things. Uh, they, are, they are adjustable in order to fit in with what you want, all those ideals that people hold. So that you're always, you always look good in your own eyes. <laughs> so you want to be perhaps concerned about, you put your career above everything else. You how you look in front of everything else and what people think of you. You care about what car you drive, what house you have, whether you have all your various felt needs met and desires met. And you go to church just enough, enough to satisfy yourself of how, and how people think about you. And there's one member of the audience who's missing from your thinking, the one who truly matters. And that's God himself. And for some reason, that is peculiar to the sinful human heart. It always finds a way to relegate God to the back of the audience, or so it thinks. As though God is not interested. God doesn't care about all the sinful details of my life. That he can be tricked by a bit of religious activity. And if you just do enough, then surely he is happy with you. Because you are happy with you. So thinks a religious hypocrite. If I'm happy with myself, then surely God is happy with me. And so, as soon as you've done your religious duty, 
you go back to thinking about yourself. That's why Paul, in verse 8, describes these people as self-seeking. Self-seeking. It is what happens when you have an outward form of religion only, and it becomes a a nice form of self-seeking. But it's no different at heart from the rest of the world. But that audience of one, the one, matters above all other onlookers. The fact that God is looking on matters above all others. He does not want the bits and pieces of our lives that we are willing to give up to him. He doesn't want the religious scraps of our lives. No, he wants all of you. He wants all of me. And that's why he made us. He made us in his image. To be in full fellowship and communion with him. That's what we've been looking at on Sunday mornings. In the park, as we look at the book of Genesis. And he wants us to to walk with him in all the aspects of our lives. He wants everything about us. But then this thing called sin came into our lives. And it's in all of us and it hides out. In our hearts, and perhaps especially in the hearts of religious hypocrites. So there will be judgment, and the truth will out. There will be a separation, either to eternal life or to wrath. And included in the group heading for wrath and fury are some who consider themselves to be sorted out spiritually. It's a challenging message, isn't it? Well, let's move on to the second thing. This judgment, it will cause a great separation, but it's also a judgment according to knowledge. Uh, Paul now speaks in verse 9, not just to Jews, but to the whole collection of humanity. In verse 9 he says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Uh, It's an intriguing statement, isn't it? The Jew first and also the Greek or the Gentile. He's already used it in chapter 1, verse 16. He was speaking then about salvation, uh, but now he's speaking about judgment. Tribulation and distress of the final judgment will come first to the Jew. And no matter how the Jew protests, we, are we not a, a chosen, privileged people? Uh, Paul would say, yes, but, and therefore you have no excuse for your sin. <laughs> therefore you have no excuse. Now let's see how this works out. So come to verse 13. And Paul says, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. I'm going to put the question of justification to one side for a moment. I'll come to it at the end. I'm saving all these good questions for the end. You maybe get frustrated with me. But what's Paul really getting at? What's Paul getting at in verse 13? He is saying, yes, you have everything written down, but the question is, are you really doing it? Are you really doing what the law says? And it's the perennial problem for religious people, isn't it? Knowing where the commands are, knowing what to do, talking about it, having Bible studies on it, but not actually doing it. It's the the most difficult thing to get to in a Bible study. 
uh, in our men's group or in a midweek meeting is what are we going to do about what we've learned? What's the application to all of this? And, you know, the Bible does this. Uh, the reason we do that is because the Bible does this. Uh, think of, uh, and, and Paul is lining up uh, very closely with James here, where James says in James one twenty two to 24, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. That's kind of a silly idea, isn't it? You look at your face in the mirror and you walk away and you forget what you look like. Well, that's how people treat the Bible. They read the Bible and they, they, they then turn away from it and go and do something else and they've forgotten what they've read. They're not interested in what, what you need to do about it. And Paul is saying here that because Jews have knowledge... Unlike the Gentiles, but they do not act on it, they will come under more severe tribulation. Then in verse 12, Paul briefly turns to the Gentiles. For all who have sinned without the law, so he's talking about Gentiles who haven't received the law, they will also perish without the law. And there he's thinking about Gentiles who were not given the law, yet he says they too will perish. And Paul seems to anticipate the question that may occur to us, how can they be judged if they don't have the law? And we may have heard a version of this, how can people be condemned if they've never heard about God or heard about his law? How is that fair? But the answer comes in verses 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You see, Paul is saying something saying that everyone, who does, everyone does know something about the law, no matter what background you come from, no matter what religious culture that you're, you're born into, into. Everyone has a knowledge of what is right and wrong, because at your creation, it was written into your heart. As one commentator put it, when Moses wrote that law on the tablets of stone in Mount Sinai, he was only writing out what God had already written into the heart of man at his creation. Everybody has a knowledge of what is right and wrong, a sense of right and wrong, a conscience. Again, we're touching on that this morning. And it's interesting, if you, if you, find, if you often find people who do not believe in God, who have a secular, even an atheist worldview, who argue that you don't need religion for there to be a sense of morality in society, and of course as Christians we agree with them. You don't need religion to have a sense of right and wrong. Because it's not just the written word that gives us a sense of right and wrong, but we argue that the reason people have a sense of right and wrong is because they have a conscience, and that's the way that God has made us. He has made us with a conscience. And in a sense, the law is written on our hearts. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that for all people everywhere are accountable to God for what they know says Paul. 
And secondly, it means that those who have received the privilege of the written law, as well as on the heart, will be judged more severely and more strictly. And hence, in verse 9, the tribulation and distress will come upon the hypocritical Jew before the delinquent Gentile. Judgment is according to knowledge. So judgment, a judgment, there will be a great separation. And judgment will be according to knowledge. But finally, what about this question then of eternal life? So far we've been seeing how both Gentiles and Jews will come under judgment. Gentiles because they simply ignore God. Jews because they are superficially righteous, but actually are hypocritical. And that judgment is according to what they know, and everyone has some knowledge of what God demands, some more than others. But in verses 7 and verses 13, Paul holds out the possibility of eternal life and justification. But the disconcerting thing about it is that he seems to be suggesting that salvation comes by doing what the law says. What are we to make of this then? It seems to contradict the idea of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you look ahead to chapter 3, verse 20, uh, Paul couldn't be clearer. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Is he contradicting himself? This is where we need to read the Bible carefully. And we need to wrestle with the Bible Uh, We can't just have a superficial attitude to the Bible. We need to wrestle with the text carefully. Just remember what Paul is doing here in this section. He is speaking primarily to the religious hypocrite. The person who thinks that they are perfectly acceptable to God because they have a religion and a moral code. And there is a sense, I think, in which Paul is following the logic of that line of thinking. I think what he's doing here is he's laying out how a religious person would think, but pushing it to its full conclusion. And it's true that if if it were possible for a person to be perfectly and persistently obedient to God in every way, doing good in every way, like Adam must have been at least for a time before he ate of the fruits, then of course such a person would inherit eternal life. And such a person would be justified. In other words, would be right with God. But while he's doing that, he's also showing that the searching eye of God's law and God's judgment goes far deeper and goes into the darkest places of the heart. Places you did not even know you had. And Paul's intention is to use the law to puncture any pride and any pretension that somehow we are able to be acceptable to God through our works. You see, if we jump ahead for a moment, Paul is reaching towards a conclusion, which you find in chapter 3, verse 9. What are we to say then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, uh, Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, not even one. And then in verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. 
There's not a single person in, on this earth who can possibly achieve eternal life through keeping God's laws. It's impossible. That's what Paul is getting at. That's where he's leading us. And either there has to be another way, or every man, woman, boy or girl is hopelessly lost and vulnerable to this judgment. Is there another way? Well, let me just point out a couple of things. It may help us here at this point. He will get to that, but there's some clues here in this passage. First, the first clue is the way that he considers works in verse 7 is quite striking. Uh, so he makes the general statement, he will render to each one according to his works. And then in verse 7 he just defines what those works are for those who are going to receive eternal life. And he talks about those works as being... As those people um, searching after something. And look at those words. They're seeking glory, honor, and immortality. This is what he defines as the work that leads, the works that lead to eternal life. And those words, glory, honor, immortality, are words that throughout the Bible are associated with the ultimate aspirations of the people of God, looking to the promises of God. Paul is not talking about human glory, or human honor amongst other people, or making a name for yourself that will live on in the memory of those who are left behind after you die. It's not that kind of immortality, and it's not that kind of glory and that kind of honor. He's thinking about a God-given honor. He's talking about the righteous desire... For God and all that he promises, it speaks of a life that is totally devoted to closeness to God, seeking his glory, seeking his honor, seeking immortality, to be in his presence. In other words, this is a, this is a gospel aspiration that is built into such people, a gospel hope. And when you have that kind of faith, of course it issues in patience, in well-doing and serving other people and doing good things. Now all of this is in contrast to verse 8, where what is laid out there is self-seeking disobedience to the truth that may cloak itself in religious respectability. You see, there's a difference between those two views. On the one hand, you have those who have their hearts focused on God, on his ultimate redemptive purposes, which issue in well-doing, versus a self-serving, holding to traditions, but in your heart of heart, you have no concern for God and his glory. So that's the first thing. Just consider carefully what Paul means by works here. It's not quite what you think it is. The second thing to say about it is, of course, is, is the message that we need to draw from the wider context of the book of Romans. Uh, sometimes you can zoom in too close. And if you forget the rest of it, you, you've, you wonder why he's saying what he's saying. And it seems to perhaps contradict what you think. So we need to bear in mind the bigger picture. 
And remember that Paul has come, and he's writing this letter, as a messenger of the good news about Jesus Christ. The only one who perfectly kept the law. And if you look at verses 7 and 13, you'll see as you read them, I'll read them again in a moment, but you can see that only Jesus keeps those, uh, those commandments. To those who in patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Only Jesus can do that. Verse 13, For it is not hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Uh, Jesus is able to perfectly do the law. Only he can do it. Now how does that help us? Well, Paul will say more about it in later chapters, but if we jump back to the opening of the letter, remember this is our gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. This is a gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, salvation comes to everyone who believes the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the gospel of the Son of God who came, descended from David, who lived a perfect life in active obedience to the law. But then, in his passive obedience, suffered sinlessly ultimately enduring the judgment of hell for sinful, sinful people on the cross. And as a result of that, the price that is on our heads as the people of God is lifted. And so we too can go free with a clear conscience into eternal life. So that's great news, isn't it? Great news of a saviour who has perfectly kept the law for us, who has done what, has shown patience and well-doing, and has suffered in our place. It's a great gospel. It's a wonderful gospel. And all because we have a wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the provision that you have made in Jesus Christ. Uh, Thank you that... This gospel transforms lives so that men and women recognize their own sinfulness and their need of our righteousness that comes from God because they can't provide it for themselves. But thank you that such is the transformative power of the gospel that we are, as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are able to live changed lives and seek glory, honor, and immortality. Father, may all of us in this room know and love the Lord Jesus Christ above all things and resolve to live for him all the days of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.